0: Welcome to Disrupt Disruption, a series of intimate interviews with global thought leaders and practitioners operating at the intersection of business, leadership, and technology. We're discussing all things innovation and disruption and how to not only survive but thrive in these times of exponentially accelerating change. Trusted by CEOs, founders, and leaders globally for the latest take on business models, methods, culture, and leadership, we cut to the chase, debunk the hype, and get real. You're in great company. I'm your host, Pascal Finette, co-founder of Be Radical. Hello, everybody. I am super stoked to be here with a friend of mine, Maurice Conti. And Maurice and I met at a place called Future.io, Uh, which is a a think tank and a learning institution headquartered out of Germany, in structure, a little bit like Singularity University, really helping people to see the future and then seize the future, do something about the future. And Maurice and I uh, found ourselves speaking there. He's actually faculty there and Maurice, has an incredible, absolutely incredible background. Among the many things he's done, he led innovation and did some really cool stuff at Autodesk and if you Autodesk software maker in the 3D architecture space, etc., did some really crazy stuff with robots I've seen, like uh, welding robots and all kinds of stuff. And then also, and this is probably your biggest title in the CV so far, and there's many more, I am sure, they will, which will come. You also led Telefonica Alpha, which I think was described as the European Google X, or the only other Google X other than Google X, which is kind of unfair in a lot of ways because the stuff you've done over at at Alpha is super cool and I think very distinctly different to Google X, but let's say that's a different topic. So Maurice, super stoked to have you here. And probably if I can ask you a first question because There is no other person I could imagine who knows more and has done more in truly in this space about like thinking about disruptive innovation and thinking about the future. How do you even define disruption in your world? Like, how do you approach it?
1: So, Pascal, thank you for that introduction. That was quite bombastic. And I'm I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. And a point of just so that we don't get into fake news. I did not lead all of Alpha. I was in charge of new moonshots. I don't want to take credit where it's not due. How do I define disruption? I mean, one way to think about it is it's it's a step function, right? There's a break, a rupture in the status quo or the, the progress, the course of the, of the train or the bus. Suddenly, the road underneath the bus, there's an earthquake and there's a crack uh, in the ground and things change or need to change, or there's an opportunity to change somewhat violently, right? Somewhat abruptly. That's kind of a a zoomed out view. But I think it gets interesting when you zoom in and when you're on the ground and you feel the ground shaking and you see the crack forming in the pavement and go, "Uh uh-oh, something's happening. Now, this is externally driven disruption, right? This is an exogenous thing coming in and disrupting your context to which you might want to respond. The other way to think about it or the other way that that I think about it is more of an internal disruption or a disruption with agency. And that would be a situation where a company, a team, an individual seeks to disrupt and and does it proactively. And I think that's a very different um, context. And I think both are interesting, but I think they need to be treated uh, somewhat differently.
0: Let me dig into this a little bit more. What do you think is the likelihood of the internal versus the external? Because... I mean, the external sounds to me is like we have a change in like, I don't know, a major new technology. It comes and disrupts, right? The Internet. Yeah. Internal sounds like I am big corporation X and I, I will disruption into the world or I'm startup Y and I will disruption into the world. How likely is that from your perspective? It's-
1: yeah. Yeah. The external one. What if a global pandemic hit? and uh, caused lots of things to change unexpectedly. So that does happen. We're, we're in the middle of a beautiful example, forgive the, the word choice there, but a very interesting example. And as a futurist, watching what's happening right now and trying to extrapolate is, is super interesting because we're in the middle of something that we used to talk about as oh, it could happen or in the future. So that one's not about likelihood or probability. It They do happen, they will continue to happen, and you don't have any control. By definition, you don't have any control over it. The internal one, your question, how how likely is that? Ultimately, it comes down to semantics and what you really mean by disruption. But if you're talking about a step function, really a, a break and not an evolutionary progression, I think it's quite rare, quite difficult, often not the right goal, really. A lot of companies and teams say, oh, we want to be disruptive. Again, it's semantics. Like uh, I would be fine with using that word if it gets passion behind it, and and so forth. That's great. But but, um, a purist definition, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty rare.
0: And you were in the business of creating disruption, right? (laughs) Yeah. Specifically at at Telefonica, but I mean, essentially throughout your career, what was your approach to it then? Like, if you if you make the conscious choice and say, okay, let's give it a try, let's let's do it. Like, how do you approach this? How do you even start thinking about it?
1: Well, I think I've learned a few things along the way um, in terms of how to tackle this this challenge. Because the challenge is basically, you know, what one way to think about it is if you could do anything, if you have the resources and the mandate and you could do anything, what would you do? And that sounds exciting until you actually put your mind to it and then it gets very scary and and daunting and overwhelming. But in addressing the challenge, sort of diving in in that first couple of steps, I think the most important thing is probably having a very clear picture a a crystal clear understanding of the problem that you're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. So even in disruption, even with these big things, even with moonshots, which by our definition were things that were going to affect hundreds of millions of people, the billion plus Uh, dollar businesses and be a net positive effect on the world. So these were the three big criteria, the top level criteria. So even with these huge projects and all the way down to more modest things, I think the first step is brilliant clarity on the problem that you're trying to solve, which sounds Easy, maybe even trite, but I have found remarkably difficult to do. Vastly underestimated, both in terms of difficulty and importance and value by most corporate leaders. And the few times I've worked with some companies, some clients as an advisor, and a couple of times I've actually broken through to that C-level exec on this question of what is the problem you're trying to solve after making quite a nuisance of myself and they've they've come back and said thank you for that that has changed my perspective on innovation on leading leading the business and and so forth so again sounds super simple uh, almost silly but it's it's a discipline it's a mantra it's a philosophy and just getting that clarity on what it is you're trying to solve and the answer isn't our mission is to provide leading yada 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 that that's not even a problem Right. So that's important. The, the second thing is, to me, is probably clarity on the criteria for success. So knowing knowing what it is exactly you're trying to do through disruption. Again, very simple sounding, remarkably difficult to do, and and generally sort of underappreciated out there in, you know, in these innovation teams and so forth, because they're and it's natural. There's so much eagerness to go out and get started and get your hands dirty, right? Oh, let's go build it. Let's go start writing code. Let's start prototyping and start machining aluminum and whatever it is. And so it's hard to put the brakes on at the beginning and say, okay, but, but how do we know if we're on the right path? Because with disruption, I think by definition, you will be navigating seas that are unknown and that are uncharted. So you have to make yourself a map in order to know if you're making progress, if you're going in the right direction, and, and so forth. And without that map, you're just going to go in circles or end up somewhere that you didn't expect to or want to be. And so it's this map-making exercise that's critical at the very, very first stages. I mean, think, if you get it right, again, a tough to do, not not extremely difficult, but tough. It takes some experience and, and some work. But if you get it right, every step that you take after that will be in the right direction versus in a random or wrong direction so that the impact is is huge i mean if this is a five-year project five years down the line you'll be thinking back to that day and whether you did it well or right or not and it will have an enormous impact on every step and then maybe the third thing is again part of the philosophy is that those two things that i just talked about are fungible so they're not written in stone especially the, the criteria i think the clarity on the problem to be solved is less fungible. If that changes, it's a pivot. But the second piece, sort of the criteria is how do we know if we're making progress? How are we going to measure? How are we going to understand if we have navigated in the right direction? That can change and should and should be an active process. So every n number of days, weeks, months, whatever it is, I think it's important to take a timeout and say, are we on the right path here? Is this still a righteous mission? Are we still doing the right thing? Are we are we not doing good? We can see a lot of companies that started out with a mission to do good and, and improve our lives and the planet and so forth. And at some point, that stopped being the case for whatever reason. It could be the context uh, shifts and, and the market changes and consumer needs change or whatever it is. So it could be external, could be internal, could be that on the very positive side, some kind of chemistry happened, somebody had an idea and it's like, whoa, that was cool. But we learned a bunch of stuff and we became experts at these You know, two things that if you put them together no one is expert at that and we have the opportunity to do something that is somewhat different than our original mission but potentially uh, even more interesting so i've seen that happen so i would say that's the the first is clarity on the problem the second is knowing how sort of making making that map that navigational chart and, and knowing where you're going and how you're going to get there by being able to measure and and again the third is sort of i guess in design thing you'd be iterating but iterating at the conceptual idea level
0: Right. Yeah.
1: So you've been
0: part of a a pretty large and very visible innovation effort multiple times, which were part also embedded into or attached to a large corporation. And one of the things we find is this, this concept out there, the core and the edge. And then re- depending on whom you ask, they all give you different answers in terms of, oh, the core needs to be totally different than the edge. And then other people say, oh, no, they need to be joined at the hip. Otherwise, nothing happens. What is your experience of of making this actually work?
1: I think this is a four-dimensional problem. And if you understand it as such, uh, you actually have a chance of success. So I say four-dimensional because the model, the approach, the, the machine that you need to build to go on this disruption journey needs to change over time. The mission needs to change over time. The behavior needs to change. The relationship between the core and the edge needs to change over time. The way I've seen it succeed... Most Another way to phrase that is the the way I've seen this progress with the least amount of friction is this way. At the beginning, it's beyond the edge. It's way out there. It's a small team. So I would run down a list of small team. The advantage of a small team is it's fast, it's nimble and so forth. But even bigger advantage is it's small. So no one cares. Right? It's not expensive, it's not visible, it's not noisy, it doesn't take up a lot of space. And so it, it flies below the radar, which is really important. It's separate and autonomous so that it doesn't get gummed up in the corporate works. No no offense to the corporate works, but it has a natural it's not even like bad corporate work. So it's just, it's a big machine. It has a lot of inertia. And so keeping it separate from that, I think is important because again, at the, at the beginning, the ver- those very first steps are very delicate. The team is delicate. The people are being asked to do something that's very difficult. And they need a lot of support. So even at the individual level, they're vulnerable. They're taking risks all the way up to their time is delicate because they need to focus on doing these basically by definition, almost impossible things. So there's this fragility that needs to be shielded from the big machine, right? The next thing, I think about our R&D. For me, it doesn't always stand for research and development. It stands for risk and determinism. The core, the big machine, is a deterministic organization. And again, this is not a value judgment. This is like it's supposed to be a big company. Like you want your operating system to work. You don't want people screwing around and taking chances and experimenting with your spreadsheets or your accounting department should not be trying out new stuff that they think probably won't work with your payroll. So that machine is designed to be deterministic. As it should be in, in innovation or disruption, that team needs to be risk taking. There's a risk endeavor. It's you know, one way you could sort of analyze what such a team does is all about risk. And so keeping these separate, I think, is important because if you try and put a, a risk-taking organization whose job it is to take risks, like I go into work every day, my job is to take calculated, very clever, you know, smart risks, but it is to take risk. And you put that inside of that machine, the antibodies are going to come, despite everyone's best wishes and goodwill and excitement about innovation, and and kill that thing in short order. So this risk and determinism balance and sort of seeing that and having that out on the table with discussions with with the CEO and so forth of that, I've seen that they sort of, oh, I, I get it. I understand why it needs to be separate, and I understand why this is a different thing, and it's okay for me to take risks over there. Again, remember, it's a small team it's designed to take risks, you hire people who are comfortable taking risks, which is not the general population. Um, these are different kinds of humans. Then I think you, you stand a, a chance for success. So that's, we said 4D, there's this time component, that's at the beginning. So you build this team, you house it somewhere appropriate, and then they start on this journey of disruption. Then as time goes by, they actually start to come up with things, let's say a product. And this timeline goes by and, and there's a metamorphosis, kind of a shift, that happens relative to the core. And again, just based on my experience where I've seen it be successful is you start to bring in people. This is all about humans. You start to bring in individuals from the core. Say, Hey, we're working on this thing. You guys are super good at this part of it. Would you like to come help for you know a couple of weeks? Again, starting small, small steps. And you start to involve, involve, involve more. And that's, it's a, it's a gradient when it works, it's this beautiful, smooth gradient where more and more effort is placed by the core teams. And this thing gets bigger and better and starts to be good enough to be shown to leadership or customers. And it gets bigger and there are more resources. And then the the disruption team just lets go. And it goes off and has a life. Now, I make it sound sort of easy and simple. That transition period is also very delicate and needs a lot of careful attention and, and tweaking a lot of championing i mean the person running this has to be a tireless champion has to be super passionate about what's being done and has to i don't want to use the word sell it but has to share that passion with with the core and get people excited and one of the things that surprised me in my career doing this stuff is the amount of energy required and the importance of that championing like the idea can be amazing the tech can be absolutely disruptive and breakthrough it's not about that it's about championing this project through the process and and the machine. And so you do need that cheerleader, that person that's just driving it with love and passion and so forth throughout the organization. I think that's super important. If I take the the
0: inverse of this a little bit and I I would ask you, where do you see are the typical break points? And you alluded to some of them already, the stuff companies tend to stumble over. If you could shake an executive and say, listen, here's the three things you should really know not to do. Or to do, because you will stumble over this. What do you see?
1: Okay, so the the classic stumbling blocks. Did I ever tell you my, my cowboy Western story? No. <laughs> okay, so these disruption projects or teams or centers, it's a little bit like owning a pet tiger. So it sounds like a really cool idea, right? Like, well, that'd be cool, like pet tiger, and like your friends can come over, hang out, and then you get a pet tiger, and you're like, oh, that was that was more than I bargained for right and the story i have the parable is and i i have you know literally seen this happen uh, more than once but it's a little bit like the executives that light the spark uh, behind such an effort sort of initiate these these kinds of projects and teams it's a little bit like this group of executives went and saw a cowboy Western movie and they go and see this movie and they're like, when they walk out of the movie, it's like, wow, that was amazing. So exciting. And God, it'd just be amazing to to do that. We're going to do that uh, too. So we're going to be cowboys. We're going to go back to the office and and we're going to be cowboys either themselves or we're going to get a bunch of cowboys to to come and do cowboy stuff at, at the office. Super excited. It's genuine. It's genuine excitement, genuine interest, and they really want that. Right. So they go back to the office, they hire some cowboys and, and bring them in the office. So, okay. Go, go do your cowboy stuff. We, we love it. We love it. We're like super, super big fans. Go do your cowboy stuff. And it works pretty good. The first week or so the cowboys are in there and all of the executives are like, wow, look at the cowboy stuff. This is, this is going to spread in the culture of the whole company and make the whole company more cowboy like. And, and that's great. And then After about a week, one of the executives comes down to the cowboy floor and and they're like, guy, we love what you do. We love what you do. But the horses are pooing all over the office. It doesn't smell so great. It's really kind of a mess. So could you, yeah, we totally, we love you, cowboys. Can you do the cowboy thing, but maybe without the horses? And besides cars, much more comfortable, safer, much faster. It's easy. And the Cowboys like, yeah, we can do that. We, cars, maybe not cars, but pickup trucks. We'll do, we'll do, we get some Ford F-150s, and 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 we we can do that. Sure, no problem. So it's great, no problem. So that goes on. It's still Cowboys. The executive team is still pretty excited about Cowboys. And then a couple more weeks later, HR comes down and says, "We love you." Cowboy folks, and uh, you guys are doing great. Really amazing thinking, but the whole loaded guns on the belt—it's not. Can't really do that here. Could we just get some toy guns, and would that be okay? And the cowboys are like, "Sure." They—they're passionate about what they're working on, and so yeah, you know, we guess so. We'll—we'll we'll figure something out. We'll get some toy guns, I guess, and 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 leave those behind. And and that keeps happening, and it keeps happening, and it just chips away, little by little, chips away, chips away, chips away. And then six months later, you got a bunch of old white guys in suits with big cowboy hats on doing cowboy stuff for innovation. And and that's just a shame, right? And I think the lesson there is for the executive team, it's be sure that you really want this, honestly, because you might not. You might want something else. There it comes back to what is the problem you're trying to solve? And if they're very clear on that, then I think there is a much more probable sort of probability of success gets much higher because then you can tune. It's not just sort of cowboys, but it's like, well, the the thing that interests us about cowboys is they know how to light fires at Mm -hmm. night and, and they know how to sleep outside. Like all the actual cows and the horses are not interesting, but there's this one thing and like that's, oh, Lighting fires and sleeping outside, but we can put together a team to, to do that. So I think the lesson is again clarity on what it is you're trying to solve, and then well, this is a, a bit of soul searching. I've definitely sat with executives and said, "Are you are you sure you want this?" And then say, "No, we really want you. We really want to shift the culture and, and disrupt ourselves internally and so forth." So, are you really sure? By definition, disruption is is a pet tiger. Like it's not. It's a cow. Like the cowboys do sleep outside. They carry loaded guns. They go out. Sometimes some of them don't come back. It's dangerous. So are, are you really sure? And again, with the clarity at the beginning, a certainty about really one wanting to do it, the two of those combined, then I think you can have success. But the number one thing I see is this kind of surface passion about an idea that is disruption. And when that journey starts, very quickly, the reaction is like, oh, that's not what we had in mind right in terms of risk and, and mostly risk i mean i think that's really what it what it breaks down to different, different kinds of risk but mm. mostly risk so that's that's the number one thing other pitfalls i mean that's a pretty big umbrella one i think that that probably covers i'm just trying to think of like actual examples under that umbrella just to maybe double click a little bit another one's about culture i mean that's what the, cow, the cowboys represent Innovation and disruption culture, and I think if that's being discussed, it's more more is being discussed about the, the the corporate culture and saying, well, that's the corporate culture is going to impede this, or we want to disrupt the corporate culture. So it's all about the corporate culture, and there's not that much said about the culture of this poor small team that's fighting you know this uphill battle um, the whole time. And I think the culture of that team is critical because I think when talking about disruption. You're really asking people to do something that is basically impossible, because if it wasn't, then maybe not everybody, but a lot of people will be doing it. And what we're saying is it almost never happens. And so you've hired a bunch of people or you're taking people from the organization and you're tasking them with something that if you're honest, and if everyone here is like on board with this mission, you, you have to be face to face with the fact that this is almost impossible. Right and i'll come, come back down. to that because then you say well what why would you take that risk because it's this binary 99 percent chance that we're going to fail why would you do that there is a reason even if you um, think that you're going to fail. But so the culture of this team that's been, you've dropped this huge load on them, that's really important. And that, that starts with who the team is populated with down to the individual. This takes a, a very special kind of person. Many of the skills can definitely be learned, but I think to thrive, it also just needs to be a, a fit with every individual. Like they just have to be able to thrive in this kind of environment, which includes a lot of risk, includes a lot of uncertainty. Now, I remember. At Autodesk I went to I went to my boss's office he was a CTO and uh, we're chatting and he's a very very smart guy like you need to pay attention when you're having a conversation with him and just to keep up and and we're, we're having a great talk and he goes yo basically what I need you to do and I'd been there for maybe three weeks basically what I need you to do is go look in our blind spot makes sense I mean that was well in line with uh, with what I thought my mandate was and I thought about it for, a sec- for a second for a second I said oh so by definition you can't tell me where to go look and he said, exactly, right? So, so you have this team, you're giving them a near impossible mission and you can't help them, Like you can't give them any direction. And, and if you are, you are cutting their legs off because you're telling them to go somewhere that you, into somewhere safe. You're pointing them back to the core, to the center. I have found through some struggles that not everyone is wired for that. And some people are very uncomfortable because when I was running the teams, people would come to me and say, so where do you want, what do you want me to do next? Right? Say I don't know. That's your job. You figuring out what to do next is the job, right? This was for early ideation in, in in alpha. And most people. I mean, these are brilliant people. DARPA, NASA, like literally from DARPA, from NASA, PhDs in physics, very very bright people, very capable, lots of energy, lots of creativity, and and faced with this lack of direction, it's paralyzing. Because then they say, well, can you? So, it, you know, zero direction, because if you start to give it, then you're cutting off huge chunks of the probability space or possibility space. If I'm running this new moonshot team, I would be, by doing that, I'd be eliminating all kinds of interesting possibilities. And so I'd say, I don't, I can't tell you. Come back with some things and then I can help you understand whether those are good directions or bad directions, but you have to take those first steps. and That takes a special culture, a special kind of management, and a special kind of individual, which altogether I think is culture.
0: Let me ask the last question. This is super insightful. I, by the way, I'm pretty sure a bunch of people have nightmares about uh, cowboy movies now. <laughs> Never ever watch a cowboy <laughs> movie again. But I love the I love this story. Given everything you said, if you would have a large corporation and incumbent organization come to you and say, "Hey, we want to do this," would you even advise them to go down that route? Given what you just said, like risk reward, all the things which can go wrong and often go wrong.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I, I continue to do this um, for a living. So I would say absolutely, yes, There there is a path to success. And part of that path is defining what success means, because I think a broader, a little bit more liberal, a little bit more creative definition of what success is on a journey for disruption can yield some sort of magical and unexpected results. So and even things as maybe in the context of disruption as banal as like PR, that can be hugely valuable in a really good, positive way that reinforces the efforts of the team, actually shapes internal culture, even though this is external external PR and so forth. So if one of the the goals is to help a company create a narrative around disruption and what that company's role is in disrupting its industry, such a team can, can play a huge role. When talking with with CFOs about these kinds of things. You could say, well, how much does a full page ad in the New York Times cost, right? So it's seven figures. Well, give me that budget for six months and we will get written up in full spreads in Wired, Fast Company. Maybe the New York Times will do a nice column and so forth. So just like if you're trying to figure out how to pay for this stuff, that's a an opportunity that I've seen pay off time and time again. And usually when people talk about disruption and, and, and innovation and so forth, no one's going to talk about marketing and, and PR generally, right? They're thinking about doing products and, and disrupting markets and so forth. But that's kind of a, a back alley way to start making progress early and funding and funding things. What was the question?
0: <laughs> that was the question. That was the answer. The question
1: was, would you would you recommend? Oh, what actually? I recommend. Uh, yeah. What I recommend. So so I, absolutely. With the COVID is like, If we can have a series of honest and difficult conversations, which again, like sounds really simple is surprisingly hard to do. Like, I don't know what's so hard about let's get very, very clear on why we would want to do this. Let's get very, very clear on what it would look like if it's successful. And let's have a brutally honest conversation of, do you really want this pet tiger? Knowing that it's expensive it's probably going to bite you. It's definitely going to bite a customer and like swallow them whole, et cetera, et cetera. And if at the end of those conversations, it's probably going to be a yes. It's going to be tough, but we we really need to do this. Like we can't not do this. Like the, usually the conversation ends with yes. We hear you. We see all those challenges. We believe in that, but we can't not do this. This is too big of an opportunity or a responsibility, whatever the driver is. And in that case, I think if you start from this honest and and crystal clear beginning then I think chances of success are actually quite quite good. Yeah. Maurice,
0: on that positive note, <laughs> thank you so much. This was an incredible conversation. I said, I think we will all dream of pet tigers eating our customers, <laughs> uh, cowboys with fake guns and Ford F-150s driving through our innovation labs. <laughs> uh, so enlightening, seriously, so enlightening and so helpful. Thank you so, so, so much.
1: That was good. My pleasure, Pascal, so happy to be here.
0: Hey, it's Pascal. Thanks for tuning in on this uh, episode of Disrupt Disruption. If you want more, check out the other episodes we have on this podcast. Also know that this is part of an effort for us writing a book about disruption. So uh, keep your eyes and ears peeled towards that. And if you liked it, do us a favor. Go on your podcasting platform of choice, iTunes, Google Play, whatever it is, and just like this. Um, there's some weird algorithm thing, which, you know, if you like it, they will like us. So do me a favor, do that. And if you've got any questions, any comments, anyone I should talk to, drop us an email. Um, easiest email address for me to reach it is p, just the letter p, at finet.com. With that being said, thank you so much for listening and I will hear you here soon.